How are you? You're so welcome to Lighthouse Church. Come on, let's give a massive round of applause for the Dock location, our Navin location with us today. We love you guys. And listen, listen, listen. If you're not a person that believes in miracles, maybe you're here in one of our venues, not a person of faith skeptic, you're thinking, man, God, miracles, church, all that stuff. Does it make sense to me? Listen to me. There are hundreds of people in Ireland, in church, on a Sunday morning, when it's sunny, so if you need any more evidence of that, let me tell you something. That is a miracle that people are... Give yourself a massive round of applause. Come on. Well done to you for choosing this before the sunshine. Because I know how hard it is to look out and see that beautiful sun and think about all the things you could be doing after church. So well done to you for uh, making it. If you're new, my name is Jamie. I'm the lead pastor here at Lighthouse. And we're so glad, along with our location pastors, to have you with us today. We're in part three of a series that we've been doing called Mission Matters. Mission Matters. Most people think of the church as a building, as an organization, as an institution. The church has parts of it that are those things. The church meets in buildings. The church needs to be organized. Come on, how many parents are glad that we have update child protection policies? How many are glad that we've got health and safety? Like we need to be organized legally, fiscally, and responsibly. But at the same time, at its core, at the heart of who we are, the church is people. If you're a Jesus follower and you come to Lighthouse, you are the church. And so what we're talking about in this series is the idea that church has a mission, that mission matters, and the matters of the mission. So breaking down what is that mission, what does it look like, and what part, if any, do I have in said mission? So recap back in week one we looked at a message that we called your people your purpose your people your purpose and the idea is that because you're you are your apostrophe are you are you are the church then the purpose of the church isn't some separate thing that you can applaud or cheer or, or criticize or whatever you're part of it if you're part of the church then the church's purpose is your purpose then in week two we looked at uh, uh, uh this called your attention please which is all about this idea that the part of our purpose isn't just doing certain things. God cares about how we do certain things. And one of the main characteristics of God, if Jesus were to be here in the flesh, one of the things that will become evident straight away is Jesus is the most compassionate person in the world. That's why today in our Dundalk location, we're so glad to have compassion with us and so encouraged by the work that they do and so excited for the possibility of those of you in Dundalk to be able to sponsor children and rescue them from poverty. But it's an idea that drives a series that not only Jesus saves, because, you know, in our, in our pluralistic culture, most people are happy with people believing something different to them as long as the thing that they believe is different to what they believe is done so in a quiet way that isn't confrontational. But part of our problem with our cultural moment is that we believe in a message of hope and faith and life that not only says and not only Jesus saves, but says that only Jesus saves. And what that means is that in our culture, we respect people, we recognize people's dignity, we understand that we live in a free democratic society, thank God for that, where people can have their different beliefs and different worldviews, but not all beliefs and not all faith systems can be equal. If all beliefs and all faith systems are equal, then they're equally useless and pointless. At the end of the day, something has to be true with a capital T. Something has to be real. Something has to have 
power to change us and change our world if we're going to believe in that. And so God's plan for the world is that we would experience that. And because it's God's plan, it's our purpose. Because if we are the people of God, then whatever his plan for us is, it's our purpose. We call this back in week one, your summo proposito, or to translate from Latin, your highest purpose. What is your highest purpose? Number one, to make, to know him, forgive me, and to make him known. That our highest purpose, if you're here, or if you're in one of our venues, and you're not a Jesus follower, and you're curious, and what's all this about? What's going on? Listen, this is what all this is about. This is it. If I were to summarize Lighthouse Church in two phrases, two sentences, here it is, that we are called to know him and make him known. If we make him known without knowing him, then we'll tell people about him in a way that doesn't make sense. Why? Because God is gracious, and God is merciful, and God is compassionate, and God is generous. So because we know him, the way that we make him known is we're gracious, we're merciful, we're compassionate, and we're generous. If we know him and not make him known, then we're selfish. And perhaps the biggest issue the church in the Western world faces right now, our church included everybody, is that it's so easy to be so self-centered, so inward focused, that we think, I'm just going to love God and know God and serve God. I'm going to find some other Christian people so we can know love God. But we're not interested in making him known. We cannot divorce these two things. To be a Jesus follower means that we are, we are called to grow in relationship with him, to know him, to live our lives daily in his presence, and then to live out that presence in a way that makes him known. And when it comes to the compassion piece, like we said last week, to follow Jesus in his cause, we must follow Jesus in his compassion. So what we're talking about is what does it mean to know God and make him known each week of this series? So we call this in summary in our church, inspiring the extraordinary. This idea to every one of you, and again, this is so cool, because if you're thinking, hey, what's your motive, Jamie? Like, like if you're here and you're skeptical and you're curious, like me, like I was once so skeptical and so anti-church, anti-God. Let me tell you something, it was a competition by how skeptical anti-church can you be? I'd probably win, okay? So that's, that's my background. You're thinking, so what's your motive all this. Listen, my motive is that I believe that God made you for a purpose, that God is a calling for your life, that your time on earth has, has meaning and value, but that, that purpose is something God gave to you, but it wasn't for you. It's something that's given to you to work for others. And as we experience the love of God for ourselves and allow that love to permeate and penetrate into the world around us, where it's rescuing ch- children through poverty, through sponsoring a child, or where it's where doing something in our community, or, or loving the unlovable, or, or coming alongside the broken, or, or believing for healing for those hurting, whatever it is that we do, that is your extraordinary purpose. And we may chase that in, in, in fame and, and popularity and wealth and things, but ultimately to know why you were created, you have to know the one that created you and to come in line with your, with your life to his purpose. That's my heart for you, that every one of us would live out God's extraordinary purpose for our lives. And today, in part three, I'm calling this message Pentecost Power. Come on, somebody. Pentecost Power. Okay, heads up. So next week, what we're going to do is we're going to close off the series, giving you some very practical steps as to how we can make them known. But today, I want to set that message up by bringing you a message called Pentecost Power and explain what that means in a moment. Let me first kick off with a question. Very simple question. Have you ever, is there anything more frustrating than a dead battery? (laughs) I mean, a few weeks ago, my son, uh, I went to pick up from school. It was a Friday afternoon. So what's that? Two weeks ago. And I'm sitting in the car. They get in the car. And all of a sudden, the principal comes to the car. And how many of those parents, that's never a good day. Isn't it funny how principals never come to say, your child is so sweet. Your child is so polite. Your child does a great job. It's only when they've done something wrong does the principal come. It felt like I was in trouble again. Just like, oh my gosh, all the years come back to me. So the principal goes to the window and is like, listen, uh, Davi uh, had a little accident today. He was playing soccer. He was in goal. This older child took a shot. 
Davi went to save it and he hurt his hand. And it seems like he was in quite a bit of discomfort. And I was like, did he save the goal? Yes. Okay, that's good. Because if you're going to get hurt, at least be hurt for a reason. You know what I'm saying, somebody? So he got in the car and I said, are you okay? And he goes, yeah, I'm a sore. And I did the thing that I was raised to do. Maybe it's an Irish thing. I don't know. Is this an Irish thing? I did nothing about it. I figured he's a boy. He's in school. He's playing sports. The best thing to do is do nothing. And if it's a real, if, it, if, the, if the issue or pain is real, then after a tar- set determined amount of time, I'll somehow know it's real and then I'll do it. Is that just an Irish thing or is that like all countries? Like, we'll see how you get on tonight. Like, if, if, if it's so sore you can't sleep or can't eat, then we know for sure it's real. So I did that. It's what I was raised to do. Don't judge me. And uh, later that night, it was about... He couldn't get to sleep, and I was like, okay, this, this is real. This is not some, like, you know, this is like something's happening here. So I decided the best thing to do is to take it to Andy just to, connect, just to make sure that he's okay. As I was doing that, my phone died, everybody. So my wife's like, it's okay, take my phone. So I took her phone because my phone was dead, got in the car, went down to the hospital. When I got to the hospital, her phone was dead. How do you know it's a bad day? Got a son in hospital, two phones, needed him work. So we arrived at the hospital around 11 something, and we were seen to at 9.30 a.m. the next morning. That's the subject matter for a whole other sermon series, let me tell you. I won't even go in there. But some, there's just something about like every time you need your device, or like for me, a classic one with laptops is oftentimes I'll have a Zoom meeting and I'll be rushing to the office to get into the Zoom meeting. I'll open my laptop and I'll see this stupid thing. And it's like, why is it always when I need it that it's dead? Like, if I'm going to just, like, check the golf score, open it, it's always on. You know what I'm saying? If I'm going to Google, you know, what I want, some shop on a bicycle, it's always on. But when it comes to actually doing something meaningful, it's dead. Or perhaps the king of all horror stories when it comes to dead batteries. You're in a rush. You're already late. You're on the way to somewhere important. You jump in your car, you turn it on, and you see this symbol of the devil. <laughs> this horrific, devilish, demonic thing. Come on, tell the truth. Some of you Christians see, and you be to cast out demons. Get out of my car in Jesus' name. It's like, and usually this is preceded before it all goes blank. I hear And it's like, oh my gosh, my car is that there's something about these useful things, like a car and a phone and a laptop. These are things that help us do things. They serve a purpose. They're tools. They're instruments. And they're great when they're working. But when they're not working, it's incredible. Us as Jesus followers to also have the power of God working in us. You may not know this, but today is a very important day on the church calendar. So there's a church calendar. It exists. It's out there. Most, you know, the big dates like Christmas and Easter. But today is a day of Pentecost. Today is Pentecost Sunday. And the reason why it's called Pentecost Sunday, the reason why, you know, the denomination that we're affiliated with is called a Pentecostal denomination. The word Pentecost comes from the Greek word 50th day. The day of Pentecost simply means the 50th day. Today marks the 50th day from Easter. It's exactly 50 days from Easter. And because every year the the day of Easter moves, well, so does Pentecost. But around May time, we always celebrate this idea that Jesus did something on the 50th day that marked, shaped, determined, fueled, empowered, directed, determined the future of the church worldwide. And what he did was he sent his Holy Spirit so his church would be spirit-powered. There's solar-powered, there's fossil-fuel-powered, there's all But we who are part of the church, we who follow Jesus, we are called to be powered by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's two parts. This. I won't get to both in this series. So here's what I want to do. There's the first part, which is, what are we empowered to do? That's what I'm going to address today. The second part is, how do I experience that power? So if you're, if you're if you used to being in church, or grew up in church, perhaps you've heard the term baptized in the Holy Spirit, 
baptized in the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit empowered. There's loads of different terms. But it's this idea that when we put our faith in Jesus, there is a power given to us to love, follow, and witness for him. So here's what we're going to do. Write this date down. On Wednesday, the 28th of June, we're going to have three worship nights, one in Dock, one in Navin, and one in Dublin. And these nights, if you're, if you're someone who's not a Jesus follower, not a person of faith, you don't need to come to this because this is where we just, you know, pull off all the restraints of run sheets and timelines and all the stuff you try to do on Sunday, and we just focus on the presence of God. And what we're going to do on this particular one coming up one month from now is we're going to pray for people to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to lay hands on, it sounds weird, and we're going to pray for people to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's something that you think will be helpful. If that's something that you're praying, if that's something you want, then you should be there. If you're a Jesus and you've already experienced that, then it's time to get refilled in Jesus' name. Come on, somebody. We need a fresh and filling. So put the date in your diary. More details will come throughout the month of June. But Wednesday, 28th of June, three worship nights, three locations, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, and one night, hopefully, that will set us up and shape us for the future. Now, today what I want to do is I want to talk about, like I said, the first half, which is what are we empowered to do? And like always, our message notes are in the Bible app by version. If you have a phone, you can click uh, your, your phone, your camera, uh, you get the QR code. And then or else you can just download the Bible app, a U version from your app store. Why? Because number one, we always put notifications there. So if you have the app and you make, make Lighthouse Church your church, then you get updated. Number two, every Sunday, all the notes are there for you to track along. Now, what was said on Pentecost Sunday, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is what Jesus said to the disciples. He said, but you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, the city, Judea is like the county and Samaria's neighboring county or province and then to the ends of the earth. So the idea is that Jesus wants us to experience a power that helps us to tell, to make him known. Like if we try and make him known in of our own strength, well, who cares? Because how strong is your strength? Not very strong. If your strength was good enough, then you would be able to solve and fix yourself by yourself. But the reason why we can't do that is because the best of our strength are to change. Because understand, we're not here to play church games. We're not here to play pretend house. We're not here to, to tick off a box that I've been to church on Sunday. We believe that God has called us to make a difference in our lifetime. We believe that the reason why God has given us so many good things, the reason why God has blessed us is so that we can be a blessing. God has given so much to us, gifts, calling, favor, all opportunity, so that we can then be a conduit of his blessing to the world. And what we understand is that we have, we are, we are custodians, we are called to be stewards, we are called to be carriers of a message. The message oftentimes is called the gospel. The word gospel translated from good news. We are called to be custodians of a message of good news that has power to change people. I don't know if you know this. Maybe you're here again. You're not a person of faith. You think, oh, churches like this, there aren't that many, so Christianity's dying. Or maybe you're like me. You grew up a Catholic and you're watching the demise of that denomination. Listen carefully. The fastest growing religion or faith of any kind in the world right now, all over the world, I mean, no one even comes close, is Christianity. In fact, Pentecostal, spirit-empowered Christianity is the fastest growing faith of any kind. And even though secularism is rising and so we maybe adhere to that worldview, it still doesn't even come close to how fast Jesus is still building a church. The question you must ask, my friend, if you're skeptical is why and how? I thought we were done with all this nonsense, you may say. The truth is because there is power. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power for hope. There is power for healing. And there's power for help. And even though the church screws up, makes mistakes, and so many things that gets wrong, still in all that chaos, in all that man-made nonsense, the Spirit of God is working and touching people's lives. And we have a part in this as the church. Yeah, come on, let's give him a real, come on, a real. Let's thank God for the fact, if you're a Jesus follower, he's building this church. So, Here's what I want to do then. I want to kind of, I want to, I'm going to give you quite a bit of scripture today. 
We're going to turn to the first book of Corinthians. And the reason why it's called the first book of Corinthians is because there's a second book of Corinthians. And uh, just in case you're wondering. And Corinth is a city. It still exists at this day in, in Greece. And uh, the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the church in Corinth. People from Corinth were called Corinthians. Hence Corinthians. And we're going to look at two chapters. Chapter 2. Then chapter 15, and at the very end, I'm going to come back around to Pentecost and I'll be reading an excerpt from the first ever message, sermon, if you can call it, that was preached by the Apostle Peter on Pentecost Sunday at the birth of the church 2,000 years ago. But let's kick off on lay foundation. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 to 5. And if you have, if anyone by any chance has you know, an actual tangible Bible, well done to you. Here we go. It says this, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with claim to the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Understand that the, the people of Corinth were part of one of the most sophisticated, most intellectually elite, most uh, prominent, most prosperous uh, people of the world at that time. Corinth was a massive Roman colony. Roman, Rome, the Roman way of life, was the sharp edge of the world's best on all levels. And so Paul is saying, listen, kind of like in Ireland, like I'm not going to convince you into this. Like, I'm not smart enough to convince you to become a Jesus follower. Like, if I try to use all the best logic and rationale and use all the powers of intellect and all the faculties of the mind, it wouldn't be enough. Because human wisdom doesn't change people. Human wisdom isn't bad. Human wisdom helps people. But human wisdom in and of itself has no power to change. He said, therefore, I resolved nothing except Jesus. Verse 3, he said, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Now, when he says weakness and fear, what he's talking about is two things. One, the fear wasn't that he was afraid of the Corinthians. It was a standard. I am not the solution. I am not the savior. I am not the one. No pastor, no priest, no bishop, no pope. No man can be the one. There is one and his name is Jesus. And when we're stood next to the one, it doesn't matter how brilliant we are intellectually, morally, spiritually, whatever the eerilies you want to throw in there, we will never be better, stronger, even on par with God on his worst day. So in comparison to what God did, I came and trembling. My message and my preaching, he says, were not with wise and pervasive words, persuasive words, sorry. He said, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is so important. Why? Because God's power essentially is something that we experience. I mean, I'm trying my best to explain it to you. It's harder than it looks, let me tell you. Uh, and as much as we can explain it and make sense of it, it doesn't change. You can't know yourself into God's power. You can't study yourself into God's power. You have to experience God's power. Listen to me. One of the reasons why I'm so confident and so full of conviction, and, and, and maybe you might say even courageous in doing what I'm doing right now, uh, speaking to you from God's word as a young man born in Ireland, in Ireland is because I experience God's power. Bottom line, no one raised me, no one convinced me, something happened to me that transformed my life. So I understand what Paul is saying, that even though we're called to preach a message, even though we're called to preach something that's, that's narrative-based and logical and we can make sense of it, you, you can't will your way or work your way or be good enough your way into the kingdom of God. It's something that's built on God's power. And when we proclaim the men, we think about mission matters and the matters of mission, we must understand that the source, the pit, the, the, the crooks, the fulcrum of the power of the gospel isn't us. It's the person of Jesus. And listen carefully for every single person watching and listening who would be open to experience that power, God will change your life. Now, as I lay the foundation, let's jump then to 1 Corinthians 15. Because here's the kind of book of what I want to get into. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. And the reason why I turn to this verse is because I want to talk to you about the gospel. Okay, Because like I said, there's two parts. There's, there's what is God empowering, which I'm going to talk about now. And there's how to be experienced, which June 28th be there. But what is God empowering? We're told that the gospel is the hope for humanity. 
It's Paul said in Romans, I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is what? The power of God unto salvation. The gospel is power. Power to save. Power to heal. Power to change. This is what we believe. This is what we stand for. The question is, what is the gospel? And what's so funny is, is as I've pastored for many years and talked to people, oftentimes when I ask people what is the gospel, they only reference half of what it is. Normally they say, well, Jesus died for my sins. That's a good start. But it's only the start. Because the gospel isn't that Jesus died for our sins full stop. It's that Jesus died for our sins and... And today I want to bring clarity what the and is. I want to help those of us who are Jesus followers to understand this so we get it, so we honestly understand it. And then for those, those who are not Jesus followers, I want to present it to you and ask you the question, would you be open to receiving the gospel? Sorry for this mic, it's very, uh, I don't know what it is. Okay, so verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15. It says, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand see Apostle Paul at the end of this letter is going okay let me just come back and summarize the thing that I preach to you that you believe in that changed your life let me remind you what it is it's so interesting to me I think it's so helpful that we have in the word of God an explanation a definition an outline for what the gospel actually is and what he says is this church this church obviously was so Suffering persecution. It wasn't popular to be a Christian. It wasn't easy to be, to be a Jesus follower. People would laugh at you. People would discriminate you for uh, employment opportunities. And again, and we, we, not, not that it's as bad now as it was then. It was much worse then because you could lose your life for being a Jesus follower. But sometimes, come on, don't we in the Western world, we feel a bit of that pressure. Like people you know, will laugh at us. They'll mock us. They'll treat us differently because we believe in Jesus and the gospel. But Paul says this, you've taken your stand on this gospel. Now understand this, everyone takes a stand. Everyone. I don't care if it's save the whales, or plant more trees, or buy us the cars, or whatever it is. Everyone in life takes a stand. In fact, we probably take several stands in our lifetime for things that matter. I'm not here to say what things you stand on. What I am saying is one stand is an only stand that can stand for eternity. And that is the gospel. And Paul said, I want to remind you of the thing that you have staked your life on. Again, if you're a Jesus follower, that's what we've done. We don't just go to church or read the Bible. If you're a Jesus follower, you have staked your life on the gospel. Everything that you have, everything that you believe, everything you feel, everything you are is staked on either Jesus is who he says he was or he's a liar and all this is nonsense. And if we've taken our stand, then we should at least know, as Paul's in, what we've taken our stand on. Verse 2, by this gospel, he says, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Now again, this is so important. Why? Because there's so many people who think they're Christian. Maybe in this church. Because their parents were Christian, or they were raised Christian, or one time they prayed some magical Mickey Mouse, Hocus Pocus, Disney-like prayer. And that's all it is. Read these words carefully. By this gospel, the one you're standing on, you are saved if, 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 simple, let's just break it down. If you're not hold, holding firmly and standing on this gospel, then maybe you're not saved. Which is why Paul said, you got to test yourself and ask yourself and ask the Holy Spirit because it changes your life and calls you into obedience with God. And if we're not careful, we can fall into this trap of thinking, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, Christian. And one day we realize we believed in vain. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, some of you will come to that day and say, Lord, Lord, but I will say, away from me, I never even knew you. This is really important stuff. If we're going to say we're Jesus followers, if we're going to stand on this gospel, we must hold firmly to it. Okay, so to the point, what is the gospel? Verse 3, he said, he says this, he says, For what I received, I pass on to you. You understand, not what he learned, not what he observed, what he received. The reason why I can tell you this day is because I have received it. I have experienced it. I am experiencing it. And from what I have, 
I offer. I can't offer what I do not have. I cannot offer what I saw my parents having. I can only offer what I have. I can't offer what my pastor has. I can only offer you what I have received. So Paul says, from what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture. There you go. Message over, right? That's the gospel, right? Jesus died for our sins. He died for our sins. No, that's the first part. Jesus died for our sins, according to Scripture. But also that he was buried, that he was raised, according to Scriptures, and, verse 5, that he appeared. He died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is the Greek name for Peter. Sorry, uh, Aramaic name for Peter. Greek is the Greek word for Peter is the reason why, in case you're wondering, is because the word Cephas means rock. When Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock, the word for rock in Greek is Petros, so that's what we call him, Peter. But he's also in Aramaic, Peter, uh, Cephas. And the reason why he's Aramaic is because Jesus, uh, at the time of when he was walking the earth, people spoke Aramaic. And then the 12, the 12 apostles, after that, he appeared to, to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Very important. People didn't just have these random dreams of Jesus showing up in their bedroom at night. It's like he appeared to 500 eyewitnesses at the same time, most of whom who are living. And again, it's very important why, because if you want to fact check me, go talk to them. Although some have fallen asleep, that isn't like, oh my gosh, that's a very long sleep. It's a euphemism, of course, for death. The Christians, Christians believe that death was like sleep because eventually we will be with God in eternity. Verse 7, then he appeared to uh, James... <coughs> Then all the apostles in verse 8, Paul says, And then last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. The reason why he says abnormally born is because Paul became a follower of Jesus after the resurrection. Acts chapter 9, you've often heard the uh, expression Damascus Road experience or get knocked off your high horse. Well, those expressions come from a moment in the scripture where the apostle Paul, who was called Saul, used to persecute the church and then had an encounter with the power and person in the presence of Jesus and it changed his life. And so he feels, this is Paul's words, that I came in like I got in the back door at the last minute. Like I, It's almost like Paul is saying, in humility, I can't believe I get to be part of all this, which is a wonderful posture. So, what is the gospel? What I want to do is, I want to give you an outline. The four things that the Apostle Paul says in this text as to what the gospel is. Number one, we're told Christ died. There it is. Christ died. There we go. Christ died. Now the question I'm going to ask is, why did Christ die? Or perhaps even a better question is, is why did it matter? Like we know Christ died. Everyone dies. Like, well done, Christ. Like, what, what's, what are we celebrating here? Like, I don't understand. Why did he die? Well, the truth is, we're told in the text, he died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And again, there's a whole message in that because so much of the Old Testament is filled with prophecy pointing to what the Jews call the Messiah. The word Messiah is simply translated as Savior into English. The word Messiah translated to Greek is Christ. So Christ isn't Jesus' surname, in case you're wondering, Jesus Christ and God Christ. And No. Christ means Savior. He's Jesus the Savior. Jews, Jesus the Messiah. For us, Jesus the Savior. In Greek, Jesus Christ. So, so they believed that he would come to be their Messiah. And part of what that meant was something had to be done about the thing that separates us from God in the first place. And the thing that separates us from God is sin. And you go, what is sin? I've heard the word, you know, used in the past, reference, or heard sinful or sinners. What is sin? Ultimately, very simply, sin is anything that is done against or outside the will of God. That's it. God has, God has created this world on purpose, for a purpose. God created, created us for good. He wants us to, be in, to know Him, right? Make Him known. Anything that compromises God's good plan for the world is deemed sinful. And beyond just acts, because even the word sin, there's three ways to explain it. There's like falling short of the mark. So doing something bad or not doing something good enough. That's how we often think about sin. But also we're told in Scripture that sin is like a power that lives in us. 
Sin is the, is the force at work in us that destroys us. Sin, when you say, I can't understand why I'm so stupid, why I keep doing the wrong things or hurting those I love, the reason, the thing you're, you fail to describe, the thing you don't have language for is at work in you is a power that is designed to destroy you. It's called sin. It pulls you down. It makes everything about you. It makes you angry. It makes you aggressive. It, it, it makes you, keeps you bitter. It keeps you, you, keeps you addicted. And even though you try and try and try and try, there's almost like your body comes with a default mode to do the opposite. And again, for so long, people think, oh, the church judges me for that. Or, or so listen to me. The church is full of sinful people. If there were no sinful people in church, it'd be called heaven. And only God would be there. Because to have a church of people, that people means, by definition, you're going to have a whole bunch of sinful people. Let me tell you something. Up here in front is chief among sinners. Like, what makes me a leader in the church isn't that I'm better morally or more superior. Or it's just because I have been called of God to do a thing, and I've given my life for that thing. That's it. But you've also been called by God to do a thing and you can live your life for that thing too. And somehow despite the sin and brokenness and all the challenges, there's a power that God gives us to stand up and step out and do great things anyway. The point is, we can't work or will or wash away our sin. There's no amount of good works or good cause or good charities that we can donate to. There's no amount of good behavior that we can stack up to somehow pay the price for our sin. It's like the old analogy that imagine you committed a crime and you're in court and the judge is about to sentence you. And you realize that there's, you've, you've exhausted all energies and all efforts and there's no way for you to get, you have to pay this price. Now imagine if someone came in and said, I will pay the price for this person. I will take their punishment. I will take on their judgment. I will suffer for them and they will go free. I'll exchange my freedom for their judgment. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. Sin has consequences. And we, come on, we, we know, even if you're not a Jesus, we know, we know this. We know that if people do things that are harmful to themselves and harmful to others, there are, whether you like it or not, there's going to be consequences. And what Christ did in dying is Christ died for our sin. He took on the consequences. He took on the judgment. He took on the price. He paid the price so we don't have to. A very technical word that scholars use to describe this is the word propitiation. The propitiatory death. So Christ died in our place. He paid the price so that we don't have to. What is the price? Listen carefully. If you choose to live your whole life in sin, if that's, if that's the direction you want to go, if you want to live outside God's plan and purpose for it, then like I said last week in the Lazarus, remember that message? The Lazarus message, God's great compliment to the autonomy of humanity is that if you want to live forever without me, so be it. But understand who God is. God isn't just some old dude with a beard like the Wizard of Oz working levers trying to stop us and thwart us from having fun. God, God is good. I mean, God gave us taste. Anybody feel like drinking a nice cold drink today? I mean, good food. God gave us music. Anyone like some good music? I mean, God gave us friendship and family. God, God gave us, listen to this, the, the, the feeling of being satiated. There's a good word. Satisfied. The feeling of satisfaction, when you meet someone you haven't seen in a while, you say, oh, I'm so satisfied, you eat something good. That feeling of satisfaction comes from God. What do, what do you call an existence that is void of all those things? There's no friends, no family, no, no satiation, no taste, no smell. You can't see anything, it's dark. There's no music, no one's singing, there's no joy. What do you call, I would describe summer like that as being hell. God didn't create hell for people, but if people want to remain in their autonomy, then at the end of the day, if, if, you, if you stake your life on your secularism, and you're right, good for you. But if you're wrong, you need to really make sure and pay attention that you're making a wise choice because this could cost you the rest of eternity. Jesus did something for us because he loves us. Listen carefully. Jesus coming in a manger 
is God saying, I love you. The fact that God sent his son into the world to be born as a baby, and again, the great dichotomy of God and a baby, like the reason why God sent Jesus, he wanted people to see, I love you, and I want to do something to help you. But Jesus dying on the cross was God showing us that he loved us. It says in Romans 5, that God demonstrates, proves, provides evidence, clearly outlines, makes known, pays the price for for his love for us is when we were still sinners, Christ died. Not for the Christians. Not for the good. Read the text. But for the ungodly. Christ died for you. And again, for me, it's going to be 20 years this July that I chose to trust in that message. There's a little, uh, what would you call it, hostel. Right here's a photograph of it. In the city of Heidelberg, Germany. July 3rd, 2003. I was there playing rugby. Someone had shared this faith with me. I was resistant. I was antagonistic. I was arrogant. I was also confused. I was also curious. I was always also angry. I was all these different things. And one night, right by this window, this is not the exact room, but this is very like the room. But that window, a window like that, I opened God's word. Because you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm just, there's only one way of finding out if this stuff is real. Give it a go. If I give it a go, it's wrong. Then I'll tell those people. You're wrong, because I did it, and you're full of... <clears throat> so I opened the Bible, didn't read a single word. I think it was the book of Matthew, I can't remember. I don't know if I prayed or why I did, but I felt the love of God. It flooded into my soul in a way I'd never experienced in my life. And the power of God in that moment somehow did something in me that I just knew. I didn't, I didn't work. I didn't do. I didn't act. I didn't earn. I just, I, just, I just received. And all of a sudden, I was different. Like I'm the same person. But something in me changed. And what was so strange for me in the ensuing weeks as I began to read God's word and, and try to figure out was that I kept changing. Little things would change, but it wasn't me changing me. There was a power at work within me. Like, guys, you understand, I used to curse a lot. Sometimes I'm tempted to still do it. <laughs> I mean, in Ireland, cursing is like a comma. It's how we do punctuation, people. Come on. We don't have that many words in the vocabulary. If you don't have a few curse words, we can't communicate. You know, it's, it's understand the struggle. But like all of a sudden, no one told me, I didn't, I didn't stop cursing, like no, no one shook the finger. All of a sudden, I just stopped doing it. It was bizarre. A few weeks later, I was in a situation that wasn't very pleasant, and I ended up getting a fight, and I knocked a guy clean out, which is something I used to be very good at. I had very few qualifications in life. That was something I was very good at. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I felt bad. It's like, what? He deserved it. If you were there, you would agree with me, he deserved it. But where's this feeling of, of, of compassion coming from? I don't like that guy. I don't care about that guy. He got what he was. Come up in. Come on, somebody. Divine justice. Eye for an eye. All kind of stuff. But all of a sudden, from within me came compassion. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. This stuff is real. This is really real. Like I thought maybe I was just going to, but this is really changing my life. 20 years ago. And all I can say is that I took my stand and I'm still standing. And no matter what I've gone through, no matter what I've faced, challenged in life, listen to me, God has never let me down. But as we think about our church and mission matters, listen to this, Jesus died for you in public. So live for him. Don't, don't live for him in private. Jesus died for you in public. He was publicly shamed on the cross to pay the price for your sin. So why would we ever live for him in private? Number two, Christ is buried. Christ died, Christ buried. Now, this is interesting. Why is Christ being buried part of the gospel? Like, if you're going to preach the gospel, you can't just say Jesus died. Jesus died and he was buried. This is important for two reasons. Jesus' bodily burial is important for two reasons. Number one, proof. Because again, there's eyewitnesses who literally took his body off the cross. And their people, at the time this has been written, you could go and talk to him like, no, like he was dead. He was totally dead. He was so dead that we buried him in a grave. Listen to me. You don't bury people who are not dead in a grave. Some of you think that's my worst fear in life. 
You just don't do it. You put dead people in the ground. So there's a sense in where him being buried was important that those first witnesses could say, no, I saw and I give proof. Plus the fact, if you read the Gospels, the religious and political leaders of the day wanted to make sure he was dead so they would have verified his death. So he was definitely dead. The second reason why it's important is perspective. Why? Because when it comes to putting our trust in Jesus, we have a Savior who understands what it is to live in the flesh. Because he was born, a baby grew. He went through all the same trials and temptations. He tasted the same death that every single one of us would experience. And he also experienced burial. But even though he was put in the grave, the grave could not hold him. And as a pastor, let me tell you, something I get to do a lot of, and I wish I didn't, is put people in the ground. It's a sacred service, but it's always a heartbreaking service. And here's the thing I need to remind you of this morning, just to encourage you all the good weather. Death has a 100% success rate. You want to put your money on something? You want to get back, 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 back a winning horse? Bet on death, because it's guaranteed. It's going to happen. But what about the gospel message changes us in the face of death? Listen carefully. We can go confidently, Jesus followers, to the grave. We don't, we don't just, we don't go like, oh my God. Like we can go confidently into the grave. There we go. Because we know with certainty that Jesus left his. We can go confidently in our grave because we know with certainty that the grave could not hold him. Jesus was buried in a tomb, in a borrowed tomb, because he was planning on returning it to its rightful owner after a short weekend. Jesus' tomb is basically an Airbnb. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'll be there for two nights and I'm out of here. Okay, so his burial is important. Number three, Christ is risen. And again, this is the crux. Why? Because at the end of the day, there is no power in the death and burial of Jesus. Like if Jesus just died and was buried, what a wonderful thing to do for people. But that's it. There's no power. There's no hope. There's no help. There's no power. But when, the fa- when we realize that he was risen, that changed everything. Why? Because if Jesus lived, if Jesus lived and died, what do we call that? We call him a martyr. Yeah. And let me tell you something. History is riddled with martyrs. There's loads of martyrs. In fact, every other religious leader, founder, beginner, thinker, whatever you want to call a person, every other religious leader, they're martyrs. They believe in their cause so much, they died for it. That's a, an admirable thing that someone have that much conviction and passion. But Jesus is not a martyr. He is not a martyr. Because if he lived and died and lives... And we call him Messiah. He is the risen one. He is the Christ. He is the savior of the world. Why? Because everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Everything with Christian faith. Like Jesus died for sin, great. But if he didn't rise then, who cares? If Jesus just died and was buried and stayed buried, I don't care about your message. Because it has no power to change you, change me, or change anything else. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, then we should not rely on the gospel. In fact, I would say there is no gospel. Because all you have is another world religion. But what makes Christianity different is that if Jesus lived and died and lived again, then that changes everything. And Paul tells in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what does it mean to have Jesus Lord? You hold on firmly to his ways and his commands and his directions. That's what the Christian is. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's those two things. It's it's submitting our lives, recognizing that he is Lord. He is my king. He is, he, he is number one. I am not number one in my life. I am not number one in my finances. I'm not number one in my relationship choices. I'm not number one in my direction, my future. Like I have hopes and plans and aspirations. But God being Lord means, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. How many times do we say, no, I'll make, I want to go out who I want to go out with. I'll buy what I want to buy. I'll work on the work. And all the time we're saying, but I'm still a Christian, right? Well, are you holding firmly? Or do you conveniently throw him away when it doesn't suit what you want to do. To be a Jesus follower means we've staked our life on this message and that we submit our life to his lordship. 
by trusting in his resurrection, we can be saved. You can't be saved without resurrection. There is no Christianity without resurrection. All this nonsense is a complete waste of time. If there's no resurrection, if there was no resurrection, I wouldn't be here. And probably you wouldn't be here. Everything hinges on the resurrection. It was Martin Luther who said, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. See, there's something about what God, how God has set up nature that we see resurrection all the time. We see it in the leaves that bud every year. And right now, Ireland is beautiful, isn't it? Driving the country road, all the trees and birds, and it's so sunny. And it's like, I love this place so much. It's like, oh God, thank you for bringing me to Ireland. Thank you for letting me be born here. And of course, you're like me, you're thinking, but winter's coming. <laughs> it's like, here comes November. It's like, enjoy it because it's going to get you. It's like as bad as death. It's like, it's going to come in November, December, January, February, March. And then guess what happens? We see it, don't we? Evidenced. In nature. And what it reminds us of, and this is what I want to say to you right, right now, is that if you're hopeless and you feel like everything's dead, if you feel like there's no help in life, understand that we talk about a name that brings dead things to life. There is always hope in the name of Jesus. Okay, last number four, Christ is seen. So Christ died, Christ buried, Christ risen, and Christ seen. Why is this important? Why? Because it, it shows us Jesus' biggest mistake. Jesus made a, he made, a, he made a colossal error when he started his ministry. What was Jesus' biggest mistake? He made his message and his movement about him. Listen carefully. If you're entrepreneurial and would like to start a world religion and make some money, listen carefully. I'm going to teach you how to do it. It's for free. Okay? Just later on, make sure you put me in the footnotes. Um, how to start a religion. Don't make it about you. Why? Well, because if you make it about you and you suck, we all do, who's going to follow your religion? And if you get sick and die, that's inconvenient to your religion. But if you see someone or have something happen to you or go up on the hill and get an operation and you make it about something or someone else, people might follow you. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus, unlike every other religious leader in history, why? He didn't point to, he wasn't some kind of ambassador or prophet or witness of, he said, I am God in a bod. I am divinity incarnate. I am God on the earth. Which like when he's like casting out demons and multiplying food and healing people, it's like, oh, wow, it's amazing. We can follow this guy. But then he died, which is very inconvenient. If you want to follow him, he said, I am the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except for me. And then he's dead. What did he do then? It's very hard. So when he died, so did his message. And as we see in the Gospels, so did the movement. When Jesus died, the movement died with him. Jesus' death and burial undermined the good news. It seemed to work against it. Like on the day Jesus was put in that tomb, there were no Jesus followers. There were no Christians. As I say, every year Easter, no one was standing out of the tomb the third day going, 10, 9, there we go, everybody. No one was there. Why? Because they believed that when Jesus died, so did the gospel. Until the third day. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus' resurrection actually underpins the gospel. Meaning what? Meaning that our gospel has power because he lives. Why would you ever accept hope and help from someone that offers you something they don't have? We can't put our trust in a martyr who's dead and in the ground, but we can put our trust in a Messiah who lives and speaks and moves and heals and helps. We can put our trust in a power that changes lives. Which is why I said back in week one, week two, that's why the Bible is so important. And again, if you look at how Paul wrote these verses, he's very careful to put in, listen, he appeared to these people, and then these people, and then 500 of these at the same time. It was like we all had these like, you know, eating magic mushrooms. We all, Jesus, man, was in a soup. 
It's like, they're all like, this is really him. Like, even Thomas. Thomas is like, how many of us love Thomas? Thomas is like, I want to just like touch it and see if it's real. <laughs> I'm saying like, how do you got a kid like that? I want to, I want to, if I, if I can't put my hands on it, it's not real. It's like, in every way, his resurrection was scrutinized. And every single one who saw him believed. And Paul says, you can go back and, these people, you can go back and ask them. And it wasn't like they were believing and part of some special club. The price for believing was they were persecuted. Many of them lost their homes, beaten, laughed at. Many would be killed just because they would not change. They took a stand. I have seen Jesus. He was alive. He died. When he died, I thought it was over. But then he was alive again. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like, this is incredible. It's insane. All I can do is give the rest of my life and stake my eternity on this message. So many people, early Christians, were killed in the most horrific ways, but they would not change. Why? Because they couldn't unsee what they saw. And they couldn't unbelieve what they believed. And they couldn't deny reality. We often say, well, I'll see it, believe I see it. They couldn't, undeni- they couldn't deny what they saw. And what's so interesting is when people say, well, you know, the Bible's a made-up book, and, you know, these eyewitnesses, I mean, who really knows, and blah, blah, blah. Listen carefully. This is one of them, this is actually probably, this is the most historic, historic, reliable document in all of antiquity. It was Joshua Dowell said this, if one discards the Bible as unreliable historically, then he or she should discard all the literature of antiquity because no other document has as much evidence to confirm its reliability as the Bible. Now again, that's a very inter- that's a helpful quote because we're thinking, okay, so historically we can trust it and we can understand that these people probably existed. But still, our faith, our message, our church, our mission isn't built on convincing people. Our message is spirit-powered. And what we remember today is that 50 days after Easter Sunday, Jesus said, you will receive a power from on high, the power of my Holy Spirit. I understand, although that power enables us to live for Jesus, he said, you will be my witnesses. The purpose of our power on Pentecost Sunday, the purpose of Pentecost power is that we would be witnesses, that we would know him, that power, that healing, that hope, that help, and that we would make him known. As I close, I'm going to invite the band to come up in all three locations and get ready to lead us in a response song. I want to close off, like I said, reading an excerpt from Acts chapter 2. This is the actual moment on Pentecost Sunday where after receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, these people who are hiding away as cowards, fearful for their lives, all of a sudden completely changed and went outside and boldly proclaimed Jesus to the people. And back week one, we learned about Peter and remember John and about Gabe, you're talking about the healing of the man. It's like something changed in them. They're all of a sudden so courageous. And what changed them, you ask? Experiencing the power of a resurrected Jesus. Here's what Peter said. Therefore, this is the end of the sermon, so I'm going to go read later on, you can. This is the birth of the church, everybody. Pentecost Sunday. Therefore, let all Israel, why? Because he was preaching predominantly in Jerusalem to Israelites. Be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and, say it, Romans 10, 9, Lord and Savior. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So interesting that just a few days earlier, they were preaching the same message no one wanted to hear. But all of a sudden, these people, Peter, was preaching with such conviction. People were like, man, what is this? I've never heard this. What should we do? Peter replied, repent, which means turn around and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you. And your children. And for all who are far off. I love that. God sees you. You may feel I'm so far away. Look, we wrote into his word just for you. He sees you. For all whom, call, all whom the Lord our God will call. 
So the question is, what do you do with that? And the answer is very simple. What I received, I pass on to you. For us to make him known, we must know him. So we're going to do a response song right now in all three locations. I want you to understand this song isn't just about singing words on the screen or standing back with your hands in your pocket. This is a moment where I believe the presence of God is going to fill our environment. The resurrected Christ is in this place. There is power here for you to change. Maybe you're tired of your selfish ways. Maybe your marriage is on the brink, but you know it's because you can't change. Maybe it's some addictive behavior. You just can't seem to break out of this crazy cycle that's destroying you. Maybe it's just you constantly are so negative, angry, bitter, fearful, anxious. Whatever it is, wherever you are, even those who are far off, Jesus says, come to me. I love you. I've paid the highest price for you. More than any engagement ring, any salary bonus, any retirement fund, I made a way for you to live with me for eternity. And if we open our hearts and receive him, and even those of you right now who are raised Christian or would say I'm Christian, is he your Lord? Or is he just a cute decoration? If we're willing to receive, Jesus said, there is power. And I'm praying today, in Dundalk, in Navan, here in Dublin, that the name of Jesus would heal every broken heart. In the name of Jesus, every chain of bondage would be broken off. In the name of Jesus, dead things will live. In the name of Jesus, the sick shall be healed. And in the name of Jesus, his church will be filled with power to make him known.